listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Thank you for joining us again on Let the Bible Speak. Before we come to today's broadcast, can I encourage you to please get in touch and let us know if the Word of God is of benefit to your heart. Our email address is malvernfpc at yahoo.com. And I say we'd love to hear from you and let us know what we can do to help you in your walk with the Lord. May God bless today's message to your soul. Well, let's turn together tonight again the Word of God to Revelation chapter 2. Returning tonight to the letter uh, to the angel of the church in Pergamos. And we notice this church, they were confessionally faithful to Christ, loyal to Christ, but yet they were tolerating a falsehood in their midst, the doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things Christ hates. And so in light of that, we come to the verse number 16. We're going to read those last two verses of this letter. The Lord says to them, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Amen. May God be pleased to bless us in his word again tonight. In Luke 15, we read of the prodigal coming to his senses and returning back to his father. He's coming in repentance. He's coming with a recognition of his sin and of his rebellion. And he says to the father that he is no more worthy to be called his son and asked to be made as one of the hired servants. The repenting sinner comes to the Lord conscious that they deserve nothing. No privilege, no blessing. They simply deserve the, the, the duty of serving the Lord. And that is their responsibility. But of course, you know what happens in that parable. And the father says, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's eat and be merry. So the son knows how undeserving he is in light of his terrible rebellion and his terrible wasting of the father's goodness. And yet the father is pleased to forgive him and beyond that to pour manifold blessings upon him. That is the privilege of the children of God. We are constantly undeserving. And yet it is the Lord's purpose to pour his blessings upon us. I think of the words of Ephesians chapter 2. We're dead in sin, made alive in Christ, we're saved by God's grace. And the purpose in verse number 7 is that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus in the ages to come. We have the eternal anticipation of the enjoyment of the riches of God's grace for now and forever and ever and ever. The Lord, in His grace, though we are undeserving, assures us that He will bless us 
And in these letters to the churches, he outlines what these blessings will be. And he does so to help these suffering believers. The purpose of these encouragements is to help them endure, that they will not give up, though the temptation to give up, I'm sure, was real. Uh, the Lord comes and encourages them with promises of blessing that they will not fail to overcome. And so you have in verse number 17 here, one of these, to him that overcometh will I give to eight of the hidden manna, etc. It is an encouragement, a promise, and the purpose is in the, is in the, exhort, the exhortation to him that overcometh. Here's, here's the reason. These are given to stimulate people to press on. Let us not be weary in well-doing, says the apostle. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. We're given these encouragements, promises of God's blessings. The overcomers, again mentioned here in verse number 17, uh, the overcomers in Revelation are those who have not succumbed to the pressure to deny Christ. That's the pressure they're under. Some of them have died. This church in Pergamos, they knew of their faithful friend Antipas. He was a faithful martyr. They knew of that. And the pressure's intense to, to give up, to compromise, or to apostatize altogether. The word for overcoming speaks of victory and of conquest. It's given to us significance in Revelation chapter 12. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. To be an overcomer is to be faithful as a witness of Christ. Though the world would encourage us to keep our mouths closed, the overcomers refuse to be silenced in the face of persecution. They will say, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And they will do so consistently and faithfully. Because they love Christ above all. And so at times this overcoming is seen in a response of repentance. Verse number 16, repent or else I will come unto thee. The overcomers are those who when they hear the rebukes of God's word, they're those who receive those rebukes. They're glad to be challenged of their sin and they're glad to confess their sins and to cling to Christ's righteousness, but also to turn away from their sins and pursue after godliness. These are the overcomers. In the face of the most severe trial, the Lord is promising blessings to those who overcome. Verse number 7, there is the encouragement given to the church in Ephesus. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This tree of life, we know what's meant by this. It's referring back to, to creation, to Adam and Eve in the garden. The promise is given in the very last chapter of this book. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. So the overcomers, they have access to the tree of life. Verse 11, those who overcome in the church in Smyrna, they shall not be hurt of the second death. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. We know what that is. At the end of Revelation, chapter 21, the fearful, unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burneth the fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Hell itself is a second death. 
There is that first physical death, separation of body and soul, and there is that final eternal death, separation of God and man. Depart from me, ye cursed. The second death. So in Revelation chapter 2 already, to the Ephesians and the Smyrnans, there is an encouragement that if they overcome, they will know the perpetuity of eternal life, the tree of life, never to die again, not hurt by the second death. These promises are promises given to those who are faithful unto death. Faithful. And so it is when you come to the challenging ones here in verse number 17, we should see this reference to the hidden manna and the white stone as having significance in the time after death. In part, when we die, and in fullness, when we are indeed resurrected. There's a sense in which the overcoming is, is in that two phase there is, or taking into Christ's presence immediately in soul, and then ultimately the enjoyment of this for all eternity, body and soul with Christ. But those blessings in verse 17, they've got to be seen in light of what's said in the previous two churches. They, these are blessings of eternity. Blessings that come after we overcome. Oh yes, now, there are things that are true in part here on earth, but the fullness is known for those who've overcome. So tonight I want to look at these two gifts. The two gifts that are promised to the Pergamon overcomers. And again, they are gifts. They're not earned. And the Lord says, will I give? These are things that are given to those who overcome. They're, they're, still, they're still gifts. And first of all, then, there is the hidden manna. The hidden manna. Well, of course, the manna harkens back to the wilderness and the people of God. They've been taken out of Egypt. They've been taken through the Red Sea. And the Lord provides their physical needs by sending, raining down bread from heaven, manna. What is it? They didn't know what it was. But boy, did they eat it and they were nourished by it in the course of their wilderness wanderings. But we know this bread from heaven, given in the wilderness, physically, as often is the case in the Old Testament, was pointing forward to a spiritual reality. You turn to John chapter 6. And of course, John chapter 6 is the chapter that follows the feeding of the 5,000. There's, a, again, this connection, this linking between the physical and the spiritual. And the Lord... The Lord's making the point, and the Jews murmur, verse 41, this is very clear. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And the Lord is taken to himself, verse number 35, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth in me shall never thirst. And the Lord, he correlates his own person work. He is that bread with the manna that came from Moses. Verse 32, Verily I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gave you the true bread from heaven. And then he, he puts himself as the fulfillment of that type. He is the manna. And so the overcomers in Revelation chapter 2, they are being promised Christ. Christ in his fullness to satisfy the soul of the believer for all eternity. It is defined as hidden manna. 
Most people suggest, and I think it's very sensible, this hidden man refers to the man that was put into the pots, the golden pot, that Aaron used to store the manna that was then put inside the Ark of the Covenant. This manna, hidden manna, Christ, he comes to us in connection with the Ark, with the Atonement, the Ark of the Covenant, of course, speaking of Christ's person and work. The ark, Christ's person, the mercy seat, his work. And upon the ground of redemption, then the manna is given to us. Christ feeds us upon the ground of redemption. These are the themes, these are the images that we're seeing here. And to feed upon Christ, according to John chapter 6, is to believe on him, to trust in him, to be satisfied with Christ. In our book club, we've been reading a a book called The Glorious Feast of the Gospel uh, by Richard Sibbs. And there's a section in the first sermon that relates to the manna, and Sibbs says this, Manna was a type of Christ. It came from heaven to feed the hungry bodies of the Israelites in the wilderness. Even so, Christ sent from God the Father to be the eternal food and upholder of the souls and bodies of every one of us. Man that was white and sweet, so is Christ. White in righteousness and holiness, and also sweet to light the soul. Manna fell upon the tents in the night, and Christ came, and darkness was spread over all the world. God gave manna freely from heaven, and so Christ is a free gift, and he freely gave himself to death, even the cursed death of the cross for us. All, both poor and rich, they gathered manna. Christ is a common food for king and subject. All take part of Christ. And so what you're seeing here is the, the promise that when we overcome and we find ourselves in the presence of the angelic host, there what is given to us is more of Christ for our souls. More of Christ to satisfy us and to nourish us. This is a delightful prospect for those who hunger for Christ now. The promise of having Christ given to us in abundance as the manna, the hidden manna. Remember the hidden manna, even the high priest didn't touch that hidden manna. But here we're going to be given that hidden manna. We're, we're going to be blessed beyond the Aaronic high priest. Christ in his fullness given to us in the world to come. Every, every true believer wants an increasing knowledge of Christ Jesus. Every true believer wants an increasing of assurance and an increasing sense of being satisfied with Christ. If have Jesus, Jesus only. We want that to mean more in our souls. Not only the song that we might sing, but we, we want that to really be the expression of our hearts. That's the desire of the child of God. We want an increasing measure of love and delight in Christ. We want that every time we come around the Word of God, that our souls indeed are, are in raptures as we think of our Savior. We want to feed upon Christ with great joy. And so the true believer is often frustrated. Frustrated when the world satisfies and frustrated when the world doesn't satisfy. They live a life of, of frustration that, well, look, we say Christ is enough, and yet and that doesn't seem to be our experience. We are frustrated when we fail to take Christ by faith as we ought. You think of the worldliness that was through the church in Pergamos, 
They were tolerating these doctrines of Balaam, things sacrificed to idols, corrupt earthly things, and they were satisfied with those, but they're being promised Christ is what will satisfy your soul. And so heaven for the child of God brings the prospect of a proper appetite. An appetite for the right things in fullness and an abundance of opportunity. I think of the joy. I, I trust that those of you listening now will have a times where you've known great joy of heart when you've thought upon Christ and fed upon Christ in the Word. Those times may be rare, more rare than you'd like to admit. But there have been seasons in your Christian life when you've known intense joy under the gospel. How much more will that be the case in heaven? Amen. How much more? How much more will that be your delight? No more corruption to distract you. No more defilement to impair your appetite. But a fullness of an appetite for Christ without any defect. And you will never, ever go and find there's not Christ there for you. Fullness of spiritual contentment. You see, if this is our heavenly prospect, it is the indication that having Christ and feeding upon Christ is God's best for us now, and it is our greatest joy. And sadly, some of these things, and we, we read of them, and we think about them, and they're, they're foreign concepts, but how we need to know more of this? If heaven is to have more of Christ, how do we want to know more of Christ now? We want to have that experience now. That if this is our best and our greatest joy and glory, it ought to be our pursuit on earth now. May God help us to stir ourselves up in these things, that we would know more of the joy of taking Christ. We come to the Lord's table this Lord's Day. May it be our anticipation to feed upon Christ and to delight in all that he is for us. The hidden manna, the promise of the child of God, more of Christ. There's also the second promise, and it is a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. So there's a couple of things told us about this stone. It's a white stone. Now, it may be white, as we may understand, something that is, that is painted to that color. It may refer to the color of white. It may also refer to a precious stone, like a, a diamond, that's some, perhaps in that nature also, perhaps. It's a white stone that is inscribed. There's a name written in the stone, a new name, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. And the commentators have written at length regarding the meaning of the white stone. Some, they look back to the Old Testament, they look back to the high priest. He had stones upon his breastplate, and the names of the people of God were inscribed upon those stones. And so they would say, that's what's in view here. And of course, that's got some, some good basis in light of, of how the Old Testament is often used in Revelation. But how, how do we see those stones being given in glory? They're, they're carried upon the priestly breastplate, but they're not, they're not given in any sense. Others say the stones are reference to the Greek games, where the winner may receive a white stone with a special name on it. Well, it fits in well with the thought of overcoming. It fits in the context, perhaps. Others suggest it has to do with the judicial courts. When a verdict was announced, the judge would take one of two stones, either black or white. The white stone indicating someone 
who was declared to be innocent. So all of these may, again, have some element of truth they can be argued for, but I think our focus should fall upon this last matter of the white stone as an indication of someone who is innocent in the court of God. You see, the overcomers are promised these things if they endure even death for Christ's sake. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. The sense may well be that when they die and they meet the Lord, there is the declaration of their innocence in the court of God. Upon death and judgment, there is the assurance of acceptance and forgiveness. A token, a symbol, not guilty, and a right to be in God's holy presence. Perhaps that's the most likely meaning of the white stone. But what's the name? What's the name written upon this stone? It's a new name written. Well, there are primarily two options here. Option number one, it is the believer's own new name personally. We think of how God, in His grace, gives believers a new name. You have that promise. If Abraham becomes Abraham, you have Jacob and Israel, you have Simon becomes Peter, you have these new names. And in Isaiah 62, verse 2, it says this, And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. A name known by the overcomer, and known by the Lord. The Lord knoweth us by name. Hence, the stone would represent the connection we enjoy as the forgiven. We are forgiven, and we, we know an intimate relationship with the Lord. He knows our name, a new name given to us. Perhaps the other option is that the name is the Lord's name. Uh, that would, again, make sense in light of chapter 3, verse number 12 where there is the, the promise there of those who overcome in verse number 12, I will write upon him my new name. That ties in also with chapter 19 and the verse number 12. And we have a description of Christ. Chapter 19, verse number 12, for it says, His eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a, new, he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. So here's a name that no man knew but Christ himself. That also will tie in with Revelation 22, verse number 4, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And the unbelievers, they receive the mark of the beast on their foreheads, and the child of God, Christ's name is on their foreheads. They belong to Christ, not the beast. And so, therefore, the new name referred to here in chapter 2 may well refer to Christ's name, the Lord's name. Remember, the angel of the Lord comes to Manoah. Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it as secret? In the margin, wonderful. Christ shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Jacob wrestles with the angel, and the angel doesn't give his name. All of these things, they all, they all come back together to, to, I believe, lead us to the thought that more than likely it is Christ's name upon this stone. In that sense, the overcomer is given a fuller revelation of the Lord, a deeper knowledge of his name. 
That when we get to glory, we, we come to know Christ in a deeper level. The name that to now we don't fully grasp, we're going to grasp more fully. It connects with our forgiveness and our acceptance. Both of these views, or new name, or Christ's name, they both, they relate to things that are true. Just hard to be certain what the text itself actually teaches. Both the, the, both the concepts are true. But I certainly lean towards the thought of Christ's name. The man that refers to Christ. The stone that we receive, or pardon, or assurance, is a pardon that we have in Christ's name. I wonder, I wonder, I speculate that when we stand before the Lord, having overcome, I wonder, are we so awestruck by the holiness of God that we need this special token of assurance? We have no grasp what it will be like to stand in the presence of God. And I believe it may well be the case that it will say to us, here, here's this white stone. You are innocent, innocent of all charges, for none can lay a charge to God's elect, for it's God who justifies. And he justifies on the basis of Christ's name. And we have this stone, and we look upon the stone, and there we see more of the name of Christ, and we are deeply assured of our acceptance in the courts of God. What a hope that is! For how, how lacking we have that in our own experience today. Our assurance comes and goes, it waxes and wanes, but our only hope is in the Lord. And what a prospect it is to spend all eternity assured that we are loved of God, Amen. accepted of God. What a blessed prospect that is. And there's a prospect offered to those that overcome. Therefore, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So to the flesh, reap destruction. So to the Spirit, reap life everlasting. These are the comfort and encouragements of the Word of God to believers that are suffering to the point of death. And if this encouraged them, then how much it ought to encourage us also that we would press on for Christ's sake in a fallen world. May God be pleased to bless and encourage us tonight for His holy name's sake. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.